Hello, everybody. How are you this evening? This is Paul Carruthers. I'm the communications manager for Moto America. Somebody told me I need to stop introducing myself because they'd automatically know who this is, but that doesn't make any sense to me because what if it's your first time listening? But the person who told me that, he's kind of an idiot anyway, so we'll just ignore that and move on. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is Off Track with Paul Carruthers and Sean Bice. Sean is my partner who uh, is actually across the country in Ohio. I'm in Southern California. That sort of sets the scene. We're both uh, on the verge of, uh, of Christmas here, as is everybody else uh, this holiday season. Sean, how are you today? I'm doing great, and you're right. It won't be long. A few, uh, few more days and Santa will be coming, so uh, I'm really excited about it. I, I haven't put the milk out yet because, you know, it'll, he doesn't like sour milk is from what I understand. So uh, milk and cookies will be on the way, though, for when the boy come, shows up for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I always know it's not that close yet because I haven't started shopping. <laughs> you're like homer simpson you can just go the night before to the convenience uh, store you know how would you like some cigarillos for christmas uh, this year <laughs> actually actually I, I fib because i've done pretty well this year thanks to like amazon prime oh yeah but, but uh this morning my son and i uh went down we, we had to pick up a few things and it was one of those days where you walk into the store and like you see the two things you need instantly and you're gone in like 12 minutes and you you're like you kind of feel guilty, like, oh, did I not put enough thought into that gift? But <laughs> I, I'd rather put less thought and be gone quicker. So, man, when the stars um, when the stars align and you yeah. find that that thing right on right there in the store immediately, that makes it a lot easier. That's for sure. Well, that's we're both looking good. at we're both looking at each other, like, okay, did this just really happen? I mean, are we really out of here in ten minutes? You know, <laughs> so um, it worked out good. Um, okay, our guest today. It's kind of cool. Our guest today sits in the office right next to me at the Moto, the luxurious Moto America headquarters in Costa Mesa, California. So we're we're separated by you know two feet, and you know like six inches of that is a wall. Um, <laughs> so we we converse quite frequently about life and Moto America, probably more life than Moto America. He's James is almost like my life coach. <laughs> and I don't know if I should be worried about that or not, but you know, he, he is, but, but anyway, James Morris is our, our technical director for Moto America. So when the bikes come off the racetrack, they go to tech and park for May and, uh, him and his crew are the ones that, uh, that, that run the bikes through tech. And, uh, if there's any protests or somebody thinks there's some monkey business going on, then James is in charge of, you know, telling the mechanic he's got to strip the thing down to the frame. And then everybody hates him. <laughs> and uh, this year, I felt really bad for James because he went from the KTM, the KTM Cup Series to Junior Cup. And as you know, the spec class, KTM class, was probably the easiest class that he had on his plate because everybody rode the same bikes. Nobody complained. Then we came up with Liquid Molly Junior Cup class, and, and James's life changed dramatically. I noticed he started to get a little bit of gray on the hair that was <laughs> remaining. He was a little more stressed, like his face sometimes had this angry look that I never seen before. The furrowed brow. Oh, just the, oh my God, which dad is going to yell at me next? Or I can see, I think Chuck Graves is coming. Or, you know, uh, oh no, there's Dale Quarterly. I better hide. But uh, but anyway, so it made James's life a little bit more interesting this year. So let's bring him in and we can have a chat with him. I figured uh, who best to get our new rules package. They're not new rules packages, but we've tweaked a few things. 
but I figured it would be best to get that uh, straight from the horse's mouth. And I'm not, I don't mean to call you a horse, James. So welcome, <laughs> welcome to the show. I'm sure you miss me in the office today because I'm not there. And I know you're sad, but can you kind of perk up a little bit and talk to us for, I don't know, 50 more minutes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's do this. It's very, it's very boring in the office right now. There's about three what? of us and we're all uh, contemplating when we're going to leave. So, <laughs> Yeah, you're yeah. doing that. You go first and I'll yeah. go second. And then if they ask about you, I'll say you just went to the store. Right. They keep, it, yeah. they keep nudging towards the door. So. Boy, yeah. I'll tell you, we all, I'll tell you, James, your my perception of what's going on right now is completely different from what you're saying because with these rules coming out, I just picture you at this giant keyboard, you know, manipulating things and saying, "Hmm, what will we announce next?" You know, <laughs> <laughs> I thought for sure that's how it was going to go. Plus, is it is it true or did I did I hear incorrectly? Did you in fact invent Morse code? Uh, yeah, actually, that <laughs> I, was my great grandfather. Oh, but it's in the it family. Was, okay. Yeah, it's in the family. So he wasn't even that great until he invented it. Right. <laughs> right. More of the right. poor grandfather. Now he's great. <laughs> but but seriously, James, tell us what is your background um, with what you do? I, you know, this is a, a legitimate question for me because I actually don't know um, what you where you come from and what you did and you know before this and all that. So can you give us that rundown? Yeah, um, it was kind of. I mean, I totally got here oddly, but it, I started off my career as a mechanic for, uh, in the car and automotive business. Mm. So I was a mechanic for BMW for 12 years. And, um, about halfway through that, I, I mean, I had always ridden motorcycles and worked on my own, but, uh, a friend of mine and I started a motorcycle shop and uh, we got pretty popular in, in Southern California for club racing. And we did some nationals and stuff like that. But uh, in the end, uh, we just kind of decided to sell the business and look into other opportunities. And so I was out of a job and mm. it just happened at the same time. I, uh, Moto America had started and I got a call from Nicole, who was a kind of club raced with us, uh, you know, when we owned the shop and said, Hey, we're looking for a technical manager. And so I applied and I just happened to, you know, live in Irvine. So it was right by the headquarters. So it all kind of just worked out. Um, I wouldn't say I was particularly qualified for this position, but uh, I had been around it, you know, for a long time. So mm -hmm. from there, it was just learning, uh, you know, learning the ropes. And uh, I worked with Scott quite a bit, Scott Smart, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to learn how to do this thing. And um, so far, it's worked out, I think. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's plenty of people that would say otherwise. <laughs> but, ah, but screw those people yeah right so <laughs> do, do you feel you know. do you feel the pressure of the job do you think do you feel like it's one of those thankless tasks where if you set the rules it's like you know it kind of not that rules are made to be broken but um there's always interpretation of the rules so people are always coming to you does it does it feel do you feel that on the day-to-day -day or at the racetrack 
Yeah, I mean, you know, Paul uh, was saying how this year was definitely the wor- was the worst. It was mm-hmm. it was the toughest, you know, because I think the hardest what you feel is that all these, you know, racers actually have a lot of money and time invested in this. And so it does hit them more than just whether they're winning or losing a race. I mean, it's, you know, to some people, it's their livelihood. Mm-hmm. And so these decisions are, you know, really important. So they do weigh on you. You know, if you, if you feel like, uh, you know, it's not going the right direction or a certain rule isn't the way it should be or, or whatever, but it's tough because everybody's got their own, uh, you know, wants a different thing. It's not, it's not easy to come up with one set of rules that fits everybody. Mm-hmm. So when we, when we, uh, got to the end of the Liquid Molly Junior Cup class this year, did it achieve a balance or close to a balance, do you think? Yeah, I do. Okay. I think, uh, I think the last, uh, few rounds, um, I think we got there, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, I it felt like I, the, pe- yeah. it felt like there was a, the brands where, you know, there were brands among on the podium. It was a multi- multitude of different brands, you know, at least three, obviously. But, uh, um, yeah, I felt that too, but I wondered what you felt about it. If there's still more tweaking or will it always have tweaking? Um, I, I hope not, <laughs> mm-hmm. but right. yeah, I mean, we're going to start the year with some new balancing concepts, um, mainly because. It's, you know, the, the way that we did it this year was purely, uh, on an RPM limit for each bike. Um, we did allow some small modifications for the Yamaha, but, uh, the problem with that is we, some of the bikes like Kawasaki, where we took 2000 RPM out of it, they, it's hard for them to find a gearing combination that works. Places like Road America, you just have to go as tall as possible when you're down 2,000 RPM. So now we're looking for new ways to balance them that don't affect the RPM so much so that they have more gearing choices. I mean, that's the thing that I think is tricky. You know, you think about in Superbike, and we'll get into that in a bit, but, you know, I I just know the first couple rounds seem to favor the Suzuki if you're talking about the two factory teams. And Yamaha always comes on a little bit later, and I hear them say, well, you know, this isn't a Yamaha track. Well, you know, there isn't balancing involved in Superbike, so you can only do so much balancing anyway because the characteristics of motorcycles are all different in some ways, even though their their displacement might be close to the same. Yeah, and actually, we don't want to balance, you know, the other classes. I know there's some degree in every class just how you make the rules. But, you know, Junior Cup, we purposely say we're going to balance this. That way, you know, the they, they don't go too far with modifications. We're trying to cap price, and we're trying to get as many people involved as possible. So. The, the idea is that you can grab any bike, any, you know, minimal modification, and you can go out and race and start your career. You know, the other classes, Superbike, we're saying, you know, you have a huge window of modifications. You go win the race, you know, and it's going to cost some money. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's how it is. So It's called a Superbike for a reason, right? Right. Okay, James, I got a question. 
regarding the junior cup and the weight regulations, what I want, you, you've seen me and my body type and you've seen Sean and his body type and Sean, let me just get it out in the open right now. I love you. You're handsome. And I want to kiss you. Anyway, he's, he, he's really familiar with my body type because when we go on bicycle rides, he's always trying to draft me because I'm a lot stronger rider than he is. And yeah. that's the only way he can really, really start, you know, not, not get dropped. So anyways, much of a draft. No, my <laughs> air behind is smells sweet and is thin. <laughs> anyhow, anyhow, so they call it dirty my air. question in NASCAR, they call it dirty air. I think. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> so anyway, so let's say that Sean and I are of equal talent. Yeah, who I would draft Sean. Ad- <laughs> no, I'm talking oh, about okay. in the junior cup race. <laughs> right. So we're of equal talent. We're both incredible road racers, and <laughs> you know we piss excellence in the morning, and. uh <laughs> But I'm smaller and he's bigger, so I have to add weight to my bike, and he gets to take weight away. Is any is there an advantage to being one of those or the other? Um, I I think that uh, it's uh, you do have an advantage being the lighter rider because you can add weight wherever you like on the motorcycle. So um, you have a choice of where the weight goes. Uh, on the other side, though, the heavier riders are generally taller too, so. They do, if you are taller, and some of these kids are actually really tall and thin, but they uh, mm-hmm. they have good leverage over the bike or better leverage over the bike. And um, I mean, you've seen like Aaron Yates muscle the bike around, um, but I, still, I think the advantage goes to a lighter rider. Yeah. See, yeah. Sean, you're screwed. Yeah, Paul, I just want to <laughs> say if, you know, let's talk about football. If you were carrying the ball, you want me in front of you. I mean, yeah. you want to knock down some bodies on the way through. No, I would, I would follow you anywhere with a football in my arm. <laughs> um, hey, James, so I have a question regarding that weight. I, I was over uh, in um, Alec Dumas' pit area during the summer, and I was talking to Dustin Apgar, his uh, crew chief, and I had noticed that there was a – something in the middle of the bike down just above the swing arm that was all taped up. And I had a feeling what it was, but I said, what is that? It looks like a battery. And he said, Oh, it's actually the ballast we have to put on the bike. And so clearly Alex, not a a big guy. And that R that RC 390 R is quite fast. And obviously they had to put weight on it because of the balancing. They put it in that position. And to your point, they can put it anywhere, but it sure seems like a smart place to put it around the middle of the bike. And, fairly low on it do you think that there's a strategy on where that weight goes oh yeah for sure i mean yeah that that helps the bike quite a bit and you know him and uh sean both had to add the same amount of weight but oh okay yeah so but because we didn't balance you know combined it was just bike weight so you can see how that was kind of an advantage you you know for alex versus sean because sean is I, I don't know. I would say roughly uh, ten or fifteen pounds heavier than, right. than Alex. You know, so okay. you know, in this case, I, I feel like in that case, I feel like the the combination of the weight and bike would have been a benefit for them. You know, to balance between mm-hmm. the two. Mm. And and you th- and is that why other? I mean, Sean, towards as the season went on, he. He struggled a little bit. Do you think that was part of adapting to the changes for him? Yes. Yeah. Adding okay. weight to a bike is tough, you know, and mm-hmm. and 
taking the RPM out of it is tough too. You know, right. it's like working with what you have now is, is, is hard to do. So, um, it's just Dumas really, you know, overcame that stuff and, and rode really well. Right. So. He did. Another conversation I had was, I think it was early on. And I know early in the season when Jamie Astadio got her podium in the wet, um, you know, that bike, that Kawasaki Ninja 400 out of the box was obviously fast and was, was the target in terms of having to change some things on it. I don't remember which round it was, but you can tell me, uh, and they got limited on their RPM and she was saying it really, really changed it a lot. At least in the first practice, they had the, the gearing wrong on the bike. So it was like, it, it basically shut off and, you know, it kind of surprised her a little bit. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? How, how things affect with the RPM? Yeah, we, so after Atlanta, we made major changes, uh, VIR and it was, you know, we weren't sure how far we were going to make a change because we're waiting for the world super sport 300 to race before we could get any baseline data on how much to go. So Knowing that it would be a big change, we released a bulletin that said, you know, be prepared for up to 2,500 RPM removed, meaning wow. go, get, go get as many gears as you can that are available to you, you know, sprockets and whatever it takes. Well, at VIR, nobody was ready. I mean, every Kawasaki, we, we had taken 2,000 RPM out of it and, uh, every Kawasaki was on the rev limiter down the straightaway mm -hmm. and that, mm -hmm. and that stayed that way pretty much through qualifying. And then, uh, the next day people started getting it sorted out, you know, but it was, it was definitely a big adjustment. Yeah. It sounded like it was a, it was a real big difference for those guys. One of the, one of the other things we heard and you kind of spoke to it a little bit is you, uh, were a little bit, uh, you you had to follow FIM their changes, and you changed things after they did, which kind of put teams a little bit behind the eight ball. But that was because of the way it was. You deferred the FIM on those rules. Is is that correct? That it it kind of came in at last minute a lot of times, seemingly to the, some of the teams. Yeah, I, the we were yeah. we were late on a lot of stuff, and. Um, you know, it, it was definitely not intentional or a lack of work. It was just, right. we needed as much data as we could get, you know, to make the right changes right away. And it was hard to come by, you know, it was hard to, it's not like we're running a race every, every weekend, you know, or mm -hmm. we didn't, you know, we don't have a lot of series to, this is the first time we, we were doing this, you know, mm -hmm. so I think, it, it, you know, we want to make sure we did it right. Ultimately, it took us longer than we had hoped. You know, I mean, it took us more rounds than than we would have wanted. But um, luckily, it kind of worked out in the end. So. Yeah, it was, it was definitely tricky. Um, I This is... I was going to switch and ask you a question about Twins Cup, but I want to make sure, Paul, are you cool if we talk about a different class or you, do you have anything more you wanted to ask about Junior Cup? No, let's, let's move on to another one. We're fine with that. Okay, so here's a specific question for you about, about Twins Cup. Actually, it's a couple of them, James. Um, we, this class, 
There's been a lot of talk in this class and it, you know, I've kind of argued or agreed with some teams that have felt that this possibly is a, is a stepping stone from junior cup. It's an intermediary class between junior cup and super sport, just by virtue of the, the displacement and size of the motorcycles. But there are older riders in it and it's a tuner class. There's a lot, it seems to be pretty wide open to a lot of things going on. Um, so from your perspective as a technical person, the, the person in charge of this, where do you land on Twins Cup as what it is? Do you think it is both? Do you think it, it could be a stepping stone? It kind of almost supplants Superstock 600 uh, as an in-between? You know, in club racing it is. You know, mm-hmm. we used to see a lot of kids uh, go from, you know, 125s and stuff like that to to the Twins class before they went to 600. Mm-hmm. Um, it all depends on who shows up in the end. Right. You know, it's uh, if we start getting these kids from Junior Cup to sign up for Twins, then it might just turn into that, you know. But if, but if you know, it's really just who shows up, you know, and who's interested in the class. So Right. And I've heard, like, for sure, like, Drake Beecham is going to race uh... – Twins Cup this year, and he's kind of looking at looking at it as a step into Super Sport. But then you have you know some of these other guys, seasoned riders like Chris Turner or Chris Parrish, who won the class, and you know they they think of it kind of as their own thing. You know, uh, for Chris, I think he's you know re uh, rebooting his career a little bit. For Chris Turner, um, yeah. for Chris Parrish, it's a little bit like I've been a club racer, and you know this is kind of my specialty, and I'm going to keep tweaking this SV650, and for all it's worth. Um, there's quite a bit you can do in that class. Um, is that correct? It's yeah. uh, pretty open. Okay. It, yeah. It's, you know, when we first started talking about it, it was, uh, we don't allow a lot of modifications across any of our classes, you know, mm-hmm. it's to mm-hmm. really tear down the motor and, and put rods in it and pistons in it that, that doesn't exist anymore, even at like the world Superbike level. So mm-hmm. That's why we made this class was something that isn't extraordinarily expensive, but it's stuff that people do on the regular for, uh, club races. You know, people mm. people show up with two millimeter over motors uh, every weekend at these club races and stuff. And this is these are standard modifications. And this way, we could actually bring in companies that haven't been able to sell products to our paddock in a while, you know, like rod mm-hmm. companies and, and piston companies and camshaft companies and and stuff like that. So yeah, that's kind of where we were going. All right. Here's a question for you. Uh, and I was going to, I was actually going to answer this on Facebook, but answering things on Facebook sometimes isn't a great idea, especially for me. Yes, John, <laughs> stop. <laughs> I know, but I I have an overwhelming sense of justice sometimes. And, uh, (laughs) but uh, somebody asked a question that I think I know the answer to, but I'm going to throw it out to you as if this person asked you a couple of people, I think, I think it was one person, maybe two, somebody had said in the twins cup class, Hey, what about that KTM 790? So James, what about that KTM 790? Um, it won't be in the twins cup this year. Um, we tested the bike. And it's, you know, it's a great bike, Um, but I feel like it's, it was out of reach for the other competitors, for the other manufacturers in this class. So, um, yeah. I mean, I'm not a smart, 
I'm not a smart guy, but it's a 790 or somewhat close to a 790 cc engine, I believe. Isn't that the reason that it's not? It's just a bigger, bigger engine. Yeah, when we first made the class, we didn't know who you know who was going to show up. Is it going to be SVs? That, you know, or or we even had a provision for BMW 800s. Yes, and you know we we included a lot of motorcycles to see who is going to homologate their bikes, and. And in the end, it was Kawasaki, Yamaha, and and Suzuki that actually homologated the bikes, and those were the guys that showed up, and you know filled the grids with with those bikes. So uh, we kind of decided from there that the that the spread in CCs was too far. So mm-hmm. we we reduced the CCs to seven fifty unless it's air cooled, and um, and we're gonna see how that works out. Just so you know, my response was going to be, there's no replacement for displacement. (laughs) (laughs) And like I said, I'm not a tech guy, but at least I knew that was a bigger engine bike. Can you explain to us, you said who was going to homologate the bike. Can you explain that process? Who does it? How it's done? Um, Is it a manufacturer thing? Yeah. In most cases, it's FIM does the whole thing for us. But since Twins is is our class, um, we did the homologation for this. And uh, basically we have a a document that has all the requirements, which, you know, include that the bike be a production motorcycle and so many units are sold in America and, um, and they're available to competitors and they're under a certain MSRP, which I believe for this class is $15,000. And uh, the manufacturer has to you know basically sign off on all that that they're guaranteeing that all these things are true and then they also provide us with uh with the blueprints for the motorcycle uh for almost every part on the motorcycle we have a document that has its dimensions and its weight and its tolerance and we use that so in case there is ever a protest we can always go back to these documents or even just the physical part and compare it to whatever is being protested. Mm-hmm. And you say tolerance because these parts wear, they change a little bit, um, and there is a tolerance level. They're not all exactly to the thousandth or whatever. Is that correct? Um, it's not wear. It's a manufacturing tolerance. Oh, gotcha. So, okay. Yeah. So it's um, – but they are very – I mean, on these motors, when they spin this kind of RPM, there's not a very big tolerance for anything you know, Mm -hmm. going on. So, I mean, they're within grams on, you know, the weight of a rod or something like that. It may only be a a five gram tolerance from their heaviest to their lightest. Mm -hmm. Mm. Has there been much from a technical aspect in the super sport class? I mean, it's predominantly um, Yamaha R6s and a few uh, Suzuki GSXRs and Kawasaki, which I'm hoping and expecting that we're going to have more Kawasaki's in on the grid this year. Uh, where's the 600 class in your mind? And has there been much from a technical aspect you've had to deal with? Um, we made a pretty big change this year uh, for this season um, in getting rid of the stock 600 and then finding an engine package somewhere in between super sport and stock 600. And uh, it kind of worked out. I mean, Mm. you know, we looked at where the competition was in stock 600 and how the bikes, uh, 
I mean, in 2000, what is it, 2017, if you look at the stock 600 class, the, the Jixer 600s and the Yamahas were running fairly equal. Mm. Um, and we looked at those modifications as why, you know, why are they running equal? And, and we found a couple differences across manufacturers, like porting on certain bikes does more for for you know this manufacturer and these velocity stacks work good for this manufacturer but not as good for this one so by eliminating some of those things um i think we actually did pretty good of making an equal platform for the bikes and that'll remain the same for this year for 2019 yeah yeah we haven't made any changes um for super sport in that regard okay um, how close is uh, how close is stock one thousand spec wise or tech wise to what super stock one thousand was? Is it is it close to the same? No, it's a okay. that's a it's a completely different bike. Okay, stock thousand our super stock one thousand. We we kind of had a fear of putting the bikes on the same track at the same time that there were certain right. things that had to be the same. Um. Basically, a super stock thousand was a, a super bike from 2015 without the motor. I mean, okay. they had they had swing arm modifications. They had uh, full brake systems. Um, I mean, they were there was a lot of modifications they could do on those super stock thousand bikes. When we decided to separate the class, we went back to a true stock 1000 class, which the brakes came off. Um, there's no motor modifications. There's no swing arm modifications. Uh, they basically do suspension. They do allow for some data and, uh, and some fuel mapping. And that's about it though. Those are, those are truly stock bikes. So can the electronics in a, uh, a stock 1000 bike be flashed at all? Yes. Yeah, we do allow oh, flashing. Can. Yeah, yeah. We do allow okay. flashing for these to use. Okay. Um, you know, you mentioned about with the engines in Superstock 1000. I remember the fact that, you know, I guess all the other modifications, except for the engine, uh, and I, I believe possibly you couldn't do a lot with the radiator possibly, or maybe some teams didn't, but it seems like those bikes ran extremely hot because they were they were kind of super bikes that didn't have quite the the engine or the thermal uh transfer uh advantages that a superbike engine does is that is that correct yeah that that is true and um you know and uh, unfortunately that happens but the uh the they need you know quite a bit of air especially when they're in the draft or when they're uh, like at miller down that long straightaway yes. you know i mean right. there's not a lot i mean every bike overheats there Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, making that kind of horsepower, it's going to happen. Right. But, yeah. So I think, but they're doing pretty good now with the, uh, you know, a lot more stock configuration. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Go ahead, Paul. Do you, do you guys want to talk about superbike rules? Oh, yes. I just stepped back into the room. I actually went for a run, which was quite nice. <laughs> You know, and you know, Sean. Sean just kind of took over, and you know, maybe we should make it Sean Bice and Paul Carruthers instead of Paul Carruthers and Sean Bice. You know, we start talking about technical shit, and the guy just runs off with the whole damn show. How about the and, Sean and you know, James show? <laughs> yeah. Oh, there you go. Now I'm completely eliminated. 
<laughs> Maybe I could take Doug's job. Off track with Morrison Bice. <laughs> Featuring occasional visits from Paul Carruthers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, let's talk about the Superbike rules because obviously there's been a lot of talk about it. A lot's been written about it. Um, so let's hear from James on that. I, I mean, it, it, it basically comes back to the electronics, which seems to be the conversation of uh, for any series you talk about in the world now it's just you know we're at that point where everything comes back to electronics because obviously it's so important and it has so much control over everything uh tell us a little bit about what we've got going for the coming season with regard to uh superbike rules james well this year we added a uh an additional superbike kit that we're calling the moto america approved superbike kit i think the the terminology might change in the future but uh we found that you know over the this isn't new but over the last couple of years that we needed kind of a mid system um that is a little more affordable a little possibly easier to work with for you know it's i think maybe not easier to work with but for the teams that are here they're more familiar with uh with these motec systems so um, in the past, we haven't had, I guess, the buying power to really offer a complete kit at a, you know, at a good price um, that everybody can use. And recently, um, FIM and BSB and the, I think, a Spanish series and an Italian series were also all looking for this system. Uh, we just happened to to get it going first so uh it's it's a motec system based on what they call the m130 ecu and it's got the bsb spec superbike software with the addition of uh traction control and wheelie control and launch control and there's uh there's some data logging and and stuff like that and it's a spec system that uh all these other series are likely to adapt exactly like this. So it will be kind of an international spec superbike ECU. Hmm. And um, James, that's the, James, that's interesting. So I wanted to understand that because people have sometimes said B BSB, why aren't, why don't we, why aren't we like BSB? And of course our thing is, we want to try to mimic or mirror some of what World Superbike is doing. But you're saying BSB, these parameters that we have that they don't have, they're probably going to adopt those additional intervention parameters on their ECUs? I don't believe BSB will. That, I mean, okay. that's completely up to them. But this is, uh, but I know that the Spanish uh, Superbike series and the Italian series were both looking for this. ECU and they both want that uh, that traction control. BSB does a lot with without, I guess, without these functions. Um, but our, our issue is that BSB they only allow one ECU, so everybody runs this. Uh, every bike has the same one with the same parameters. We're allowing options, so if we didn't allow traction control, well, a stock ECU allows traction control. So it wouldn't be very useful to our competitors. So why do they only allow one ECU and why don't we do that? Um, well, I don't know why. I mean, I can't speak for them, but I, I can say that, you know, 
most Americans in general don't want to be told what to buy. Sure. I guess, yeah, no, know? I get it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they want, they want an option. So right. it, it's hard to, you know, anytime we say spec, everyone's like, Oh, you know, you see a bunch of eyes roll, you know, and, um, it, they want to do their own. Everyone wants to do their own thing, but in in the case of fairness, it's it's a lot easier to to control whether people are using the right stuff if if we only if we have a limited amount of options. You know. Yeah, I mean, so, let's face it. I'm, this is not disrespectful to Paul in any way, but it is called Yankee ingenuity. We do like to try different things. Am I right? Right. Okay. For sure. So, Paul, is yeah. there Australian ingenuity at all? Is there? Does that exist? Um, your dad, no. your dad's pretty ingenious though. He came up with some crazy things, didn't he? Yeah. He w he was ingenious when you had to be, <laughs> yeah. you know, cause if back then when you had to make changes to the motorcycle, you know, you pulled out a saw and you cut a piece out of the frame and you rewelded it. Right. Right. And, and then, and then, you know, people in his position just kind of became parts fitters. Right. And that's, I think when, that's when I think he kind of, you know, wasn't enjoying it as much anymore. So, right. Right. Yeah, he's an he's an ingenious fellow. Yes, I can tell. And he make he makes really good kids too. <laughs> <laughs> Debatable. Well, well, he had he had to have some ingenuity for you. Let's put it that way. Oh, or man. patience. Oh, man. Hey, so James, uh, so okay, you're gonna probably disagree with me, but I'm gonna count this on my hands. I see there's five different options. Okay, there's a stock ECU that probably nobody does. There's a stock ECU that you can flash. There is a kit ECU, like I'm going to say YEC's kit, the kit that Yamaha offers a kit ECU. There, there is, uh, I guess, the Magneti Morelli system. And now we have this Motec. Is it, am I right? Is that the correct number? Correct. Correct. Okay. Because I'm separating stock ECU from stock ECU that's flashed. I know nobody would probably run a stock ECU, but you could. Yeah. You there's could. there's five, but only three that matter. Right. Right. Yeah. What, right. And that's exactly the crux of my question here. It, in the three that matter, how do you decide? Is it based on cost? Is it based on uh, complications of the system? Tell me about that. Well, first, the there is the Magneti Morelli, but it's um, it's it doesn't have to be a Magneti Morelli. That just happens to be. Okay. It has to be uh, the manufacturer chooses who they want to use as their superbike system and all everyone in our paddock suzuki yamaha that's that's their you know system uh honda kind of they kept going back and forth on um and i'm not talking about our honda but uh world superbike honda mm -hmm. um they were using a cosworth system at one point but i think the morelli ended up being what they used um either way i think that now you have to decide what system you can maximize as a team. So the the uh, the top system, the Morelli system, is you know it's really indefinite in its capability. You know everything's unlocked. It you can do everything, every possible function you can think of, from corner to corner mapping, corner to corner traction control. You know, I mean, really sophisticated stuff. The, the MoTeC system is one step down from there where y you have a little more uh, simplicity to it as far as, uh, as far as how it 
you know, calculates its traction control and all that stuff. So, you know, and then obviously like your kit systems are way more basic from that. So really, if you want to, I think if the teams want to do their best, uh, you know, perform their best is just be realistic with what system they're capable of maximizing, you know? So, and I think that's one of the problems was with the Morelli system, uh, not a lot of people were, were accustomed to using it. You know, it was a big switch from, from the MoTeC systems that they were used to, but the, but the Morelli system itself is very capable system. I mean, it, it, and, and, you know, it's, you can see what they're doing in World Superbike. Those bikes right. are, are moving, you know? Mm -hmm. So. Is it almost, is it almost too, wide open for some teams because you can kind of get somewhat lost in the deep end. You know, you don't know, there's too much to change and adjust. Do you think that's yeah. fair, a fair? Okay. Not just that, but I mean, there's not even, you know, the base settings from it. It's not like you can just load a program and let's go racing and make some fine tuned adjustments. I mean, you look at the uh, Yoshimura and Yamaha, I mean, you go into their pit and they have, <laughs> you have yeah. about, there's about 600 people looking at a computer making changes, <laughs> you know, and that's just to make the rain light turn on. So, I mean, there's a lot to it, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's a complicated system. Yeah. I used to walk into this beer. I would walk into the Yosh, uh, can't pit area their truck and it cracks me up how they have the table set up and they have all the guys it looks like an it department they're all sitting all right. there with their laptops and they're all facing out but their screens are obviously facing in so nobody can see what they're doing and i so i would always go in and go hey you guys playing video games over there you know? and i would never get too much laughter out of yeah. them because they're not the types of guys that like yeah, to laugh too much around either. at all on that <laughs> You no, expect, they J you expect like something to take off from Vandenberg, you know, when they're done. <laughs> hey, just to let you know, Sean, James and I have our computers flipped around that way too, but for different reasons. <laughs> well, I was going to say yeah. maybe there's that going on too, but I don't know. You're wondering why yeah. the internet is slow at, at the races. Yeah, it's a different kind of flash tuning. <laughs> Doesn't somebody in Costa Mesa monitor that stuff? Isn't there a big brother watching it all the time? You'll know no. when we don't have a job anymore. <laughs> right, right. Well, no, we'll read about it on Road Racing World is what will happen. Like that poor uh, that poor <laughs> club racer this week that we read about. Oh, oh my goodness. No. Um, hey, uh, so, you know, I was talking with Westby Racing, uh, Chuck Giacchetto, and they, they went all full in and got a Magnetium Early system, and they have a – Technician Herschel, who apparently was with Yoshimura Suzuki, who's, you know, they knew that they had to get somebody to operate the system. And I didn't really ask Chuck or that team. I assume that they knew that this MoTeC was coming out. I, I didn't ask him. I wonder if that would have been a, an option for them to consider because, you know, it's a little bit less costly or maybe, I guess, I guess they feel like they're, Matthew really wanted to be all in on, on a, a full Magneti Morelli system. So uh, it's it's interesting that maybe some teams at this point can make a decision as far as that new Motec system. Do you think, I mean, it, it provides another option, correct? Yeah. And, you know, I hope it maybe nudges people that were afraid of the Morelli system to get into Superbike, you know, or mm -hmm. maybe guys have been holding out in stock thousand because they don't want to 
you know, because they feel like they need to go all in, you know, to make a presence in Superbike. But I feel like this MoTeC system will be uh, very competitive and you'll be all run with the run at the front with it and um, at a little lesser cost. And and really the big cost is the personnel, you know, it's the people running the system. It's not the cost of the system itself. Um, and I think you're going to be able to find more people that are, will be comfortable working with it. But I mean, you look at, at the Westby team, they, they did a great job. You know, mm -hmm. they, they made the bike work and he, he was able to ride up front plenty of times. Um, and that's a big task, you know? So yeah, that was kind good, of one of my arguments. I mean, the, yeah, I mean, the fact that, um, well, you have, you know, I know that, well, I guess in the case of Richard Stanbully, he had a magnetic relay system last year. Is that right, James? Yeah. Right. And so, but, but to your point, yeah, Westby had a, I believe it was a flash tuned kit or a kit of some sort, but it wasn't a full Magnani Morelli. They're going to have that for this coming year, but they want to race. And Kyle oh. Wyman last year, last year, two years ago at this point, I guess, or two seasons ago, got on the podium with a, a flash DCU. So, you know, there is some rider talent involved in, in there, but um, the one thing I wanted to ask you is, I don't know if you saw the article I wrote this week, but I was trying to make the argument that there is some Oh, we'll use the term ingenuity. There's some knowledge ingenuity. There's some uh, understanding ha involved in this hardware, just the way it used to be back in the days when you'd have a guy that was like a wizard with carburetors and understood jetting and, you know, slide op slide openings and all the different mechanical aspects of a carburetor, you know, to the to the winner. Uh, the winners were somewhat determined by people who could really make the most of those carburetors. And of course, the the teams that could get flat slides over CV carburetors or round slides, you know, had it maybe had an advantage. Um, do you think in some ways this idea of tuning from the old days still exists in this day and age? There are still now there are these guys like at Yosh behind the, the laptops, but they're they're kind of tuners in their own ass in their own respect. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I think that's what is separating them from, you know, that's separating the guys that are winning from the guys that aren't, you mm -hmm. know, the, the amount of just dyno time that these guys put on their, on their bikes is incredible, you know, to get their, like everyone talks about how, how Chuck Graves lives in his dyno and, you know, is constantly making maps for the, for the Yamahas and making mm -hmm. improvements and finding, you know, a half a horsepower and one RPM range or, this or that, but they're just constantly making the bike run at peak performance, you know, at the, the pot taking, you know, doing whatever they can to get, to squeeze every last drop out of it. I got another one, Paul, but you go ahead. I, I'm dominating again. No, no, no. You know, no, you're on a roll okay. and you're a good dominator. So just keep going. <laughs> I'm a dominator. Yes. Okay. James, a couple other questions. Now this goes way back and, and Paul will remember this. I recall back in the Gosh, it was early 90s when uh, Vance and Hines Yamaha had their big truck and one of the first big trucks in the paddock, magenta, yellow, and black color livery on the bikes. And they had carbon discs with carbon shrouds on them way back in 1990. And those things were unbelievable. 
course, it took a little while for them to get heat in them so they could actually use the full stopping capability. We haven't seen carbon breaks and things like that for years and years and years. Will we? Are we going to see that again at any point? And why don't we have them have them now in this age of you know the best technology wins races? Uh, I think cost is really just the is the bottom line on that. I mean, even though it seems like it sounds stupid when you have all these you're already spending $10,000 on a set of forks and stuff like that. But, you know, those braking systems are incredibly expensive and, you know, you just say, Hey, you can't run it. Then nobody can run it. And then, you know, it just, it helps a little bit, but, uh, I, I think it just comes down to cost. You know, I don't see anything. I haven't heard anything in FIM or anything about, uh, introducing carbon rotors again to the to the paddock okay and carbon carbon wheels is the same way of course it's probably a cost thing with those as well well carbon wheels um i think that's partly the certification procedure because there are rumors that a carbon wheel may be allowed soon and it may oh. be on, on a stock bmw and wow because it's what comes with the bike. So mm. we'll see how that turns out, but um, it may be the OEM wheel on those bikes. So we'll see, uh, we'll see what happens with the new BMW. Yeah, that's cool. It's just surprising that some of this technology, you know, that's been around for us a really long time. I mean, back in the day we had carburetors. Now we have fuel injection. There wasn't a whole lot of fuel injection back then, if any. But at one time there were actually higher. I don't I don't know if I want to say higher spec brakes because obviously the brakes nowadays are, are incredible. Um, but, you know, I know obviously MotoGP runs carbon uh, rotors with carbon uh, pads and and we don't and i understand that's a prototype uh series and all that so um it makes sense it's just kind of interesting though that in some ways it's the pointy end it's the sharp end of the stick but within reason i guess is that a fair way to put it yeah yeah i, I mean superbike moto america superbike yeah right okay okay i got a question for james not you sean <laughs> talk to me talk to me goose Okay, so you're you're in tech and you're sitting at your, you know, illustrious picnic table or whatever it is. With a cover, um, with a black cover on it. With it no, it does look it does look nice. There's probably a a company approved logo somewhere on there. Um and and like if if there's a junior cup dad walking towards you quickly and there's a Superbike crew chief walking towards you quickly. Which which one ultimately ends up giving you the most trouble? <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the problem with the junior cup dads is they don't come as one; they come as a flock of dads. <laughs> so, right, <laughs> you know, there's a gaggle of dads that come, you know, your way. So it's. You're getting right, and they've pre they've pre gamed at somebody's motorhome, and then they've yes. decided to come talk yeah, to you. Then they, and yeah. then they fire off at every direction, and then you have the crew chief from the superbike team. When they come up, they start with you know I I'll, I already have you fired, so just think about that, <laughs> you know. Right. So um, you know they they're both tough. Um, 
in the end though the the nice thing i would say in the paddock is there's a we have a lot of heated dis discussions you know all the time and it happens out on pit lane it happens in tech um but at the end of the day we usually you know make amends for whatever happened you know it's um it's just the environment that you know you're on a time crunch constantly you need to know information right away and uh and it's just a it's just a environment that invites you know that type of uh, conversation so mm. what well, what's your busiest day at the track that's a great question uh saturdays so saturdays we have uh you know it's all the rounds we have all of our second qualifying and uh and we do the races later in the afternoon so that's when we're doing our most post inspections and um and it's some people's last chance to qualify or get a better position and super pole also so there's a lot going in and hot going on in hot pit and uh you know if the, if they crash in the middle of the session or something they have to get the thing repaired and it's got to be safe enough to go back out again so usually we have all our tech guys out there making sure that um that the bikes are getting put back together before they go out again now there's there's not a lot of uh tearing down right so to speak anymore that. is there uh no not as uh I mean, there is and there isn't. You know, all those superbike teams will will tear their motors down once or twice a year. Um, it is kind of random, and it's based on, you know, sometimes we just we'll have one of our uh, our tech volunteers pick somebody, you know, and and mm -hmm. which is weird because that always seems to catch them. But um, but there we have kind of scheduled teardowns where we will right. seal the motors up and uh we'll wait till that the life cycle of the motor is over before we tear it apart um unless they want to do it right away but but then you know your penalties are are proactive or retroactive to the time that you sealed the motor right james can so, you explain what the concept of sealing a motor means um basically we just put uh security stickers and sometimes safety wire on on various bolts and and covers so that they can't uh, disassemble the motor. So if we put one across the valve cover and the oil pan, uh, then you can't get you know the crankshaft out of it. So um, you know then later on, uh, maybe two or three rounds down, the motor is either expired or it's just had its its time out because of mileage, and then uh we when we do tear them down we completely tear them down and we inspect everything crankshaft rods valves pistons um and we weigh everything and we compare it against our documents and physical parts so it's kind of a it's a long procedure for both of us you know it's not so do the team do the teams do the teams bring an engine to you and you guys take the engine back to Costa Mesa or how, how does, when you, when it's time to tear down an engine, do you do it at a, on a race weekend or in between rounds is my question, I guess. Uh, both. We do it on a race. Okay. I mean, it, they, they are always the ones that disassemble their motor, but it's in the presence of like, we have to be there while it's being taken apart. 
Um, but sometimes I'll go to, uh, you know, the Yamaha um, in Cyprus and we'll do teardowns there or at Yosh. But it's just if uh, it just depends on the timing, you know, as long as one of us is there, we can do it. You know, it's funny. I uh, I actually have a little anecdote about this. I witnessed this a couple of years ago. Uh, it was a time when Rick Hobbs, who uh, for people that don't know, is is the crew chief for Cameron Bobier, and it had been time for whatever reason in, uh, they needed to tear down Cameron's engine. And at the time, Rick had gotten hurt. He was uh, stepping across the wall. I think it was Laguna Seca, and he blew out his knee. So he was uh, he was a little bit semi ambulatory at the time. And he ended up sitting in a chair and Jim Roach, who uh, was the tire essentially, well, he was, he was Josh Hayes' crew chief. What am I saying? But uh, focused more on tires and stuff. He didn't really do a lot of the engine teardown because Rick handled that for both of the team, both of the riders. And Rick sat there and he talked to Jim who knew exactly what he was doing, but he was still telling him, okay, after you remove this part, there's going to be four bolts underneath, four cap screws that you have to take off. And there was somebody from Moto America standing here. I can't remember, James, if it was you, but we all kind of sat there and watched yeah. James tear down this engine. Was that you? Yeah, yeah. I remember that. In the truck. <laughs> yeah. yeah he, I sat there yeah. and watched it. And I thought it was so fascinating because Rick was kind of doing it without even touching the the engine. Right. And, and like I said, Jim could have handled it, uh, but it was good to have Rick there because Rick builds him and Rick can tear him down again. So. Um, it's a pretty involved and long process. That was that was incredible to see that happen. Yeah, I think it, yeah, you know it's good. I think the teams actually like it. You know, um, in the past they were a lot more aggressive about uh, you know take your motor out now and tear it down, no matter right. how many miles were on it. And that's just an expense. You know, if the guy knows that he's not cheating, then he doesn't have to worry about losing the next three rounds of points when we finally do tear it down, mm -hmm. you know, and if you are cheating, then let's get it over with, you know, and, and we just dock you for the round that, that you uh, used it in. But um, I think it helps the teams to be able to, you know, not have to spend money, you know, just to put a motor back together that, that they weren't expecting to disassemble. Hmm. Yeah, I think now there's just a level of consideration where before there there wasn't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, sometimes before and and again, you know, I was working for Cycle News at the time, so I wasn't on the inside um as much as I am now, but sometimes before it was just like I just got the the impression that it was just like, "Oh yeah, watch this. We're going to make you tear this stuff down." And it was just you you kind of just felt bad for the team that was involved because you know, it it might not have necessarily been it's probably a never a good time, but I think sometimes it like it seemed like they picked really bad times to uh, <laughs> right. to make somebody, you know, and it was almost like, oh, yeah, I'll take this kind of a thing. And, I, you know, it's nice to see that that atmosphere has completely changed because I'm sure the teams appreciate it. Yeah. And then the other side of that is you just want to make sure that you are, you know, tearing down enough motors so that the other so the teams are comfortable knowing that, you know, people are being checked. Too. Right. So, right. you know, that's a big part of it also. But some of the teams will come up and say, tear us down. We don't want to pack the truck tonight. So if we're here working on the bike, then we don't have to take the awning down in the rain, you know? <laughs> right. 
and and you probably volunteer to watch that one, <laughs> right. so you don't have to load the truck. <laughs> That's awesome. That's yeah. really good. Yeah. Hey James, can you explain? Uh, there's a, a, a wrinkle that came into, I believe, into American road racing with the advent of the Motor America era. And it's the concept of Park Fermi and what goes on there. And I don't recall that in AMA Pro Racing days, that was something that was done. Can you explain what's going on there with all those bikes? They have to all go to that one spot and what they do when they're there? Well, you know, it seems like it was it was a shock to everyone to bring every bike in. But when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because um, to if you don't have that period where people have an opportunity to protest, um, which I believe they've always had is, you know, whatever the period is for us, it's 30 minutes after the session, any team can protest any team. Um, but if you don't have the bike sitting in front of you, then how do you know that it hasn't been altered? You know, in the past, they just let everybody go back to their, to their, uh, trailer. And, but if you come up 15 minutes later and say, Hey, I think you're running an illegal ECU or something. Well, how do you know they haven't already changed it? Right. So, so the concept is get every bike in, don't let anybody touch it. And that's how it was on the track for that session. And that's, and that it does a couple things. I mean, you have that chance to, to, um, you protest the bike and you know that that's exactly how it was when it was on the track. And two, it gives teams a chance to look at other bikes, you know, right. and, and they look at him and they go, Hey, this guy's doing this or this guy's doing this. And that, you know, that's just looking at when you have all the junior cups out there and, and one guy has a double bubble windscreen, it really stands out right. compared to, you know, right. compared to just looking at one bike at a time. But a lot of these little infractions and stuff, you know, do stand out and, you know, the teams aren't stupid, you know, they all look at what everyone else has. And I think it also gives them a feeling of um, that there is a level of fairness going on because, uh, you know, everybody has to have a, a standard windscreen or somebody, you know, everybody has to have a, man, a, a hydraulic cam chain tensioner and et cetera. And so all the parts that you can see, you know. Mm hmm. You know, that's interesting. I thought the purpose of Park for me is for you guys to look at the bikes. I didn't realize it was kind of for the entire field to look at each other's motorcycles close up right after and if there's a question or something anybody can ask that's that's wow that's really enlightening to me i had no idea do you have situations where um a team or maybe a rider or a crew chief representing a rider will come up to you and say hey can you check so-and-so's bike i'm not sure blah 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 is that happened um yeah i mean that's that's how it happens you know that's kind okay. of the standard you know we get that quite a bit Okay, and what do you, yeah. do, do you ever find anything that you have to have somebody fix? Yes, I mean we, okay. yeah, we find stuff every round. You know, we might have twenty or thirty items. You know, and some of it, most of it's safety related. You know, and and there are some safety rules that maybe people aren't used to uh, from AMA to compared to now, um, mm -hmm. like like tank foam. You know that. It's that uh, that foam that everybody has to put inside their tank, and right, and a lot of people aren't used to having that. But we check every bike, you know, that it's got it. And even the rain lights thing was um, 
you know, people were very confused when it first came out, like what kind of light, you know, and what does it have to look like? And it's actually just a really simple device. And I think people are more accustomed to it now and it's not such a big deal, but it took a, it definitely took an adjustment period, you know, to get all the bikes uh, up to spec. Re regarding Superbikes, so this is an interesting question that just popped in my head all of a sudden. World Superbike, <laughs> oh no! World, World Superbike, I believe, is doing this. Does this? I used to have this conversation with somebody that was in our paddock. He was not anymore, but he was a journalist, a writer who hated the fact that the bikes had headlights on them uh, because he felt like it was kind of like NASCAR. And he said, "I don't care if World Superbike does it." And I mean, and I don't mean functioning headlights. I'm talking about yeah. the appearance of headlights, and that's the thing that he had the issue with is that they're just stickers. What what is the rule in Moto America? Is that required, and why do they have that? If it is required, uh, no, we we don't require it. They um, we did require it in Superstock Thousand, and it it was it's more to separate the bikes, you know, than anything. It's just to show this is a stock bike and this is a super bike. Okay. You know, and so we never required it in Superbike, um, but yeah. But some it's teams did run it. Yeah, you can still run it. I mean, some people like how it looks, but it's just cosmetic. You know, it's right. like, uh, but it's the same with the windscreens. I mean, double bubble windscreens are you can buy them for anything, and they're the same cost. You know, but there's a appearance to it that you know, makes a bike look more stock when it's got a standard windscreen versus a double bubble. And that's, right. and you know, that's the reason that these rules are the way they are, you know. But a double bubble windscreen is not illegal. It is in stock thousand. Oh, in stock thousand, but not, yeah. obviously not super not in, bike. And... Not in super bike. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Double bubble trouble is what you get <laughs> <Yeah>. in. <laughs> That's James's yeah. favorite. Boy, boy, so stock, so James, stock 1000 really is get a hyper bike, a thousand uh, CC or whatever it might be, a displacement bike off a showroom floor, uh, safety wire it, take off some things and put it in the show. It really isn't, it's really not much other than that, huh? You no, know, it's, yeah, I mean, it, I think it really shows, you know, the, what the best stock bike is. Right. You know, I mean, it, I, we're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, Kawasaki's out there. Yes. And yes, uh, we're seeing some BMWs. Um, people are saying, hey, I can't do much to this thing. So which one out of the box is going to work for? Me? Yeah. And a little bit of a factor with that, too, is from what we hear of the riders, you know, the contingency support program from the manufacturers helps with that, too. But but you're right. I mean, Kawasaki, it seems like, man, you know, with what Bobby Fong did a couple of years ago with the stock 1000 bike it, it seems like out of the box that thing is pretty pretty uh stout and certainly andrew lee pr pulled proved that this year with uh stock 1000 as well and and certainly that bmw to your point um but uh i i didn't realize how stock those those bikes really were and i didn't also realize that they're more stock than a super stock 1000 bike was quite a bit more stock from what you're saying yeah for sure that's pretty that's interesting okay yeah, see, it's because you don't share the, you don't have an office next to James or you'd know this stuff. I think James is glad that we don't because I'd have to cut a, a hole in the wall just so I could stick my face in and go, hey, what about this part? Or, you know, can you look at this and tell me what's going on? <laughs> right. Um, 
We, uh, funny story about the windscreens was in, in 2015, our first year, uh, the stock 600 class, um, required, uh, non-bubble or non-bubble, non-double bubble windscreens. And after the first qualifying round, we brought them all in for Park for May and every bike failed except for <laughs> Ann Roberts. So wow. <laughs> she was the only person that showed up with a stock windscreen. And, you know, it was too much to disqualify everybody. You know, it's kind of like the, you know, what happened in MotoGP where everyone's just a row behind. <laughs> you, right, know, but, right. <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, that was a quick, everyone was overnighting windscreens that day. You know, Wow. I wonder why, how, I wonder if it was just happenstance that Anne was the only one that complied. I wonder right. if she knew, did she, did she read something that somebody else didn't? I, I don't but know. Um, she, she says she maybe read the rule books. Yeah. <laughs> she says, right. Right. And everyone else swears they read them, but we'll see. You know, we, we used to hear, or at least I thought we did, uh, or I did, used to hear people in the paddock uh, on teams that would read rule books and find some kind of crazy loophole or something. The next thing you know, they'd come up with something and they're like, well, hey, it's not in the rule book or the rule book states this. Do you have any of that happen nowadays where anybody says they read between the lines on something? Well, the, you know, people try to, but the the big difference between us and what AMA was doing was AMA was telling you everything that you can't do to the motorcycle. And we're telling you everything that you can do. So if it's not on there, it's not legal. So we specifically say you can, you can add, you know, you can replace the calipers that they used to say, you know, it would be the opposite. You know, they would say you, you can't run anything but stock calipers, but People would go, well, this stock, that's, um, you know, that there's a optional stock caliper or there's a there's one that the factory sells, but it is still considered stock, you know, but you mm-hmm. you can't th- that doesn't work with our rule book. You know, if it, if it doesn't specifically say that you can do it, then you can't. And that's actually the you know, first the first line of of each chapter. You know, it's it says anything that's not in here can't be done you know it's it's really good it's really good parenting skills too yeah it is you know it's it's kind of it it mirrors the philosophy of what i perceive moto america to be we went from an organization that was a can't do to an organization which which is a can do and the idea that moto america is pretty responsive to the needs and desires of the riders and teams in the paddock and it's all about well let's see what we can do so that's interesting that it extends all the way to the rules james that's that's pretty cool I'm pretty proud of that. Sean, you're killing me. <laughs> I, can't, I can't help it. We're all winners. So what am I supposed uh, to say? I know. Like, I just, do I, I get a trophy? Like a do I get a participation trophy? You'll, you'll, you'll get a medal. <laughs> I feel like the Star Spangled Banner should come on right now or something. Yeah. Yeah, Sean's holding his hand over his heart just listening to the words Moto America. <laughs> yeah, I will I will pledge allegiance. Actually one word. <laughs> For sure. Well guys, I'm gonna um I'm gonna put an end to this okay. because I think we're I, I I know I think it's the longest <laughs> podcast in the history of uh on track with Bison Carruthers because I already moved that around since he talked more than me. <laughs> but um Don't do that. I'm not you're I'm second fiddle and that's where I wanna be. So. 
Yeah, you're a good second thank, fiddle. I appreciate your thank fiddle. Thank you, um, James. I appreciate you uh, you joining us today, and uh, you're awesome as I knew you would be, and uh, you explain things well, and you're a solid individual, <laughs> and I'm proud to have you as my next door neighbor in the office. So Thanks, buddy. I'm sorry I'm not there. I'm not there to entertain, but uh, you have a, a good holiday, and same to you, Sean. Thank um, you, Paul. Same to our listeners out there. We're not. We're actually not going to do this next week. We're gonna. We're gonna take a little time off, and Sean will probably be freaking drunk all the time and won't be able to do it anyways. <laughs> I can imagine his questions if he's drunk. James, could you? Yeah, do you don't want to see that. Do you do any Santa Claus gigs in the off season, or? <laughs> well, that's why we're not doing it. Sean's got three malls lined up in the greater three yeah. malls, Ohio and area, Florida whiskey. <laughs> I do, I do have a belly like a bowl full of jelly or whatever that is. In this area. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, your junior cup bike will get to be lighter than mine, so you're going to be good. So, to our listeners, uh, to our listeners, thanks for for tuning in. Uh, these things are available on Saturday mornings. Uh, that might change during the season, but at least for now, they're available Saturday mornings. And we appreciate you guys listening in. And everybody have a happy holiday. Be safe. And we will talk to you in, I don't know, two weeks. Sounds great. Thanks, everybody. Happy right. holidays. Thanks, James. See you, Thank Paul. Thank you, guys. All right. Bye, bye guys. Bye-bye.